Well, hello everyone and welcome to this Innovation Forum and Nestle webinar. We're delighted you can all join us. We had well over a thousand people registered for this. I would like to thank Nestle for their support of these difficult questions which they want to raise and discuss with like-minded folks seeking to find sustainability solutions in the supply chain. So thank you to Nestle for their support. Thank you all for joining us. So in terms of introductions, um, as you can see from the screen, my name is Tobias Webb, founder of Innovation Forum, and we are a grandiosely styled platform for change. We're still working out what that means, but effectively we're a media business really that does events and research and stakeholder engagement and tries to encourage collaboration between companies and other actors. So we do that through our conferences and our research, podcasts, webinars like this and that kind of thing. There'll be much more on this topic covered by Innovation Forum and our newsletter in, in the coming months. So if you're not signed up to the, the Friday radio show in our newsletter, please do so on innovationforum.co.uk. And we're delighted that uh, joining us in this session is Michelle Zollinger, Sustainable Sourcing Lead for Pulp and Paper Climate Delivery Team from Nestle, Scarlett Benson from the Food and Land Use Coalition at the World Resources Institute, Tillman Silber, who's Strategy Lead uh, Climate and Nature for Barry Calibo, and Sandra Genet, who is Head of the Value Change Initiative at Sustained Cert. And really what we're trying to do here is discuss from a business point of view some of the status issues around carbon accounting rules, challenges faced by companies with a land use footprint, how they can invest and scale up those natural climate solutions we're all so keen on these days, but particularly at a landscape level. And also we're going to try and address some of the specificities that land use sector companies face with relation uh, to natural climate solutions and really have a conversation about incentives and what needs to happen. We'll also be talking about what you can do if you agree with what you're hearing or disagree and engage in the debate. Because as we all know, COP26 got us a certain distance down the road, but nowhere near far enough. There's a lot to be done and there's an awful lot to be done by business and other actors coming together to help create the right progressive policy and incentive frameworks that get the job done. So that's what we're going to be discussing. We're going to start out by hearing a few brief words from Michelle, then move through the panel, and then we'll bring in some questions and comments from the audience before we finish. So, uh, Michelle, why don't you give us a quick opening? Tell us why we're here today from an SLA point of view. Thanks so much, Toby. So we wanted to convene this session mainly because we really know we need to invest in these solutions now, and we need to do that really urgently. And right now, what our concern is, is that the rules that are kind of being created right now really don't incentivize that or move in that direction. So if we want to do that, we need to take this kind of more holistic landscape approach. And if we do not have those rules that incentivize that, we're going to be kind of moving away from where we need to kind of move towards as a sector. I think it's really a crossroad moment right now where we are able to influence these rules and be part of driving them in these next Coming months or this coming year. So the objective of this discussion was really for us to start a conversation with like-minded organizations in this space working in the land sector and the food sector. By no means, we don't have all the solutions on our end, but we are very keen to hear the different perspectives that all the person here bring to the table, but also others have that are listening in or are part of this conversation. 
Well, thanks, Michelle. Let's dive right in then. Um, Scarlett, why don't you start us off and just very briefly explain the relationship between Systemic and the Food and Land Use Coalition, just so the folks watching understand. Sure, yeah. So hi, everyone. My name is Scarlett Benson. So I'm the co-director of Knowledge Generation at the Food and Land Use Coalition, which is a coalition of nine core partners, um, including Systemic. So Systemic is where I work. So I'm going to try and cover four things in the next five minutes, and they're structured around a why, a what, a who, and a how. And then I'm hoping that I'll have time to return to a slightly separate why and a what. Very confusing. Hopefully you'll understand. So the first one is around why do we need to transform food and land use systems? Food and land use systems have been very successful um, in, in the past decades in allowing us to feed a growing population. But kind of when you actually consider the end-to-end losses that happen across the system, they're actually hugely inefficient and they have significant hidden costs. Um, and these hidden costs are kind of environmental, health, poverty costs. And we at Folio have estimated that they amount to 12 trillion a year, which is approximately the size of China's GDP. So absolutely massive. And these things are like the fact that unhealthy diets and harmful farming practices are actually costing the world's economy 6 trillion a year in lost productive life alone. That doesn't even include the public health costs associated with them. So it's massive. Secondly, on to my what. What do we mean when we talk about food and land use system transformation? Very jargony words. We mean changing the way that land is used, food is produced processed, traded, marketed, consumed, and even disposed of, so that the system delivers outcomes in terms of food security and healthy diets for our growing population, whilst also tackling the core climate, biodiversity, health, and poverty challenges that we face. And in Folio, we conceive of this around the 10 critical transitions. So the first critical transition is about healthy diets, and the 10th one is about improving gender equality. And remarkably, we managed to prove kind of through integrated modeling, working with the likes of the World Bank, many universities, integrated by integrated systems analysis, lots of very smart scientists. We proved that actually it is possible to transform these systems, that nature protection and restoration really sits at the heart of that. So the benefits that I've just described, food security, all the way to climate mitigation, are ultimately made possible by freeing up of 1.2 billion hectares of agricultural land over the next three decades. So that's about the size of Europe. And that land then needs to be returned to nature. This is obviously accompanied by a near immediate halt in deforestation and other natural ecosystem conversion. So nature is critical to the transformation of this system. So my third one is who, and I guess this might sound a bit cheesy, but we all do have a role. We are all consumers, and so we all have to play our part in the transformation of this system. But I'm actually going to talk more about the role of business and, and food, beverage, and agriculture business in particular. We have a whole list of recommendations of what businesses need to do in our work portfolio across the 10 critical transitions that I mentioned before. But I'm going to kind of pull up four very high-level ones for you today. So firstly... Take a systemic approach. So protecting and restoring nature isn't just about what you do on land or in freshwater and ocean systems. It's also about the products that you're selling, how you distribute them, how you trade them, and how you market them to consumers. For example, taking that huge pressure off land in the way that I described, the 1.2 billion hectares, that means a significant reduction in meat in certain regions of the world. So we need to think about this from a systems perspective. Equally, you know, as Michelle mentioned, this is about looking at landscapes, which is inherently a kind of taking a systemic approach. Secondly, ensure the investments in your value chains and the surrounding landscapes focus on strengthening rural livelihoods. We will not achieve this unless there is a just transition and that people are at the heart of it. So that's absolutely critical. Thirdly, you need to start thinking speed and scale. There's growing evidence of these 
absolutely terrifying, irreversible tipping points. One such tipping point is called forest dieback, where essentially it gets so hot that the forests dry out and release huge amounts of carbon, which would make it near impossible to remain within 1.5 degrees. Time is of the essence, speed and scale. And then number four is about advocating. So you guys here, many of you companies, you are the leaders. That's why you're here. But actually, we need everybody on board. So this means a strong regulatory environment. And Business for Nature is obviously one coalition that's been doing some really good work in coalescing businesses on this front. Finally, back to my very slightly random why and what. Why would a business do this? And what more can be done to incentivize them to do? On the why, I mean, it's a very simple risk and opportunity story. It's it's a widely quoted statistic, but the food, beverage and agriculture sector has almost four trillion of gross value added classified as highly dependent on nature. And the sector also faces significant transition risks relating to things like pricing, regulation and changing consumer behavior. And then on the flip side, you know, we know that there are significant business opportunities. We at Folu estimated them at $4. trillion a year, all the way from things like tackling food loss and waste to creating new value chains needed for regenerative agriculture. So, of course, many of you know this risk and opportunity story as you're the leaders, but evidence from the World Benchmarking Alliance showed that just 7% of the world's 350 most influential beverage and agriculture companies are demonstrating holistic commitments to environmental stewardship. So ultimately, that takes me to the place where we ultimately need stronger incentives and enablers so that more businesses come on board. And there are various things that are needed here. For example, obviously, regulation, which I mentioned, greater data and transparency infrastructure, also key. The one I wanted to highlight it is very relevant for the conversation, I think leads on to the next speaker, is around the need for clear guidance and standards, including how we account for various impacts and dependencies that we have, so that businesses are able to make high integrity investments into nature protection, both within their value chains, but also beyond them. And I think at the moment, we're in a place where many businesses are afraid of taking action because they're afraid of being accused of greenwash. They're afraid of that the investments that they make won't count or that they will be sort of accused of doing the wrong thing. I'm obviously really heartened by a lot of the work going on in this space. Um, the greenhouse gas protocol is being updated to include guidance on the land sector. There's the science-based target initiative flag work and the science-based target network work on nature targets. All of these things are happening at the moment. So it's absolutely critical that businesses are engaged and aware of these things. And so this is why I'm so happy that Nestle have brought us all here today to talk about these really important topics. Thank you. Lots to unpack there. So Sandra, over to you. Very interested to hear what you have to say. My name is Sandra Fenet. I work for SustainCert. And SustainCert, together with Gold Standard, is running a recently launched initiative. And with recent, I mean last week called the Value Change Initiative. So I want to share a bit more about what we do because it really goes towards uh, the topic that we're discussing here today. But let me start by building on uh, Scarlett's introduction first and specifically focus on the speed and scale part, the role of business, the increasing momentum that we're seeing, an increasing number of companies that are setting science-based net zero targets but also touching a little bit on that landscape of different accounting rules, standards, and the important milestone that the launch of the new net zero standard is providing, as well as sort of the subsequent work and then the flag work that uh, Scarlett uh, already touched on. Because for a lot of companies uh, who are now setting net zero targets or science-based scope three targets, it means that they are committing to reduce their scope three emissions in line with one and a half degree scenarios. 
looking at those value chain emissions, but also beyond. So committing to neutralize and offset their residual emissions and achieving impacts beyond their value chains. So linking a bit to that landscape work uh, that all of the panelists already uh, are touching on in their introductions. But focusing specifically on the scope three part of that, because seeing that that's a key lever for change and driving corporate investment, but also that there's a big difference between setting a target and then knowing how to meet that target. First, let me applaud all of you who've already dared to set bold goals when you may not know exactly yet uh, how to achieve them. And recognize that we know that private sector efforts can need more clarity, also need more rigor and transparency to be able to do what you do best, but that this is something that's especially hard to achieve in a scope three context. Even more so given the lack of regulation that there is, but also the complex landscape of overlapping incentives, standards, mechanisms, policies, and uh, frameworks that companies want to meet and adhere to. Scope three, again, as a focus, is one that we have been looking at specifically because it's a shared, scope three is a shared challenge by definition. Someone's scope one is someone else's scope three. Several companies share their scope three footprint, all purchasing from the same supply chains and suppliers. So enabling collective action and establishing a common approach, especially to attribution and allocation of impacts that are being achieved, is something that is necessary to incentivize finance. To Michelle's introduction, it helps when you're making a business case for the level of investment that is uh, required to meet the targets that companies are now committing to. If you then know how the resulting impacts of those investments actually will align back to your footprint, to the targets that you've set, and the broader claims you're looking to make. Otherwise, that's a, a hard business case internally. So to improve that, because scope three is inherently complex, there is ways that we can support that with new accounting concepts and guidance. And this is what we've been realizing under the Value Change Initiative that used to be a program and since last week is now a full-fledged uh, initiative. But we already have a first guidance on how to account for direct interventions in value chains and specifically looking at purchased goods and services. What we found is as you start to develop new concepts that they do build on all the traditional things. We need consistent measurement, metrics, credible claims, and accountability. But we've also seen, especially sort of in the scope three Wild West, uh, that there's a need to balance that with the realities on the ground and make sure that accounting rules don't impede action and vice versa, that there are no unintended consequences. We've seen that it's only by really coming together and considering and testing accounting rules against real examples and interventions on the ground that we truly start to understand the data quality, transparency, and accessibility challenges that companies are facing, especially in a scope three context, given the, the complexities of global supply chains. With the Value Change Initiative, we're really bringing together a, a consortium of ambitious organizations, focusing specifically on scope three action at scale as a key lever to drive finance, trying to resolve barriers with best practice guidance, tools, and implementation trajectories, and doing that together with companies, recognized standards, civil society, and other actors that are driving best practice in this space. Having built this on about three years of work that we've actually mainly done with companies in the food, beverage, and agricultural value chains, 
we've seen that there are several challenges that apply to this sector in particular. A sort of an opportunity for this sector specifically to support one and a half degree pathways within a scope three context. There are still some open questions, especially that need to be resolved to enable that. Looking at uh, removals and sequestration efforts within scope three boundaries specifically. But if we can figure out how to account uh, for companies to be recognized for achieving those removals, then we can really mobilize the sector to drive financing for high integrity climate action through their supply chains. And with that, also build the foundations for broader landscape efforts that need to support this. As I hand to the rest of the panel, I think uh, great examples of how leading companies are looking to achieve alignment, credibility, and to shape best practice. So we've had the pleasure to work with Nestle and Nespresso in the Value Change Initiative, but also with Barry Caibao. Uh, we're actually already piloting verification of reductions and removals that they are achieving with some of their programs, both within their scope three boundary, but also looking to connect that to broader landscape restoration efforts, as well as finding ways to engage with clients. So with Barry Caibao, is looking to have clients co-invest, support project development efforts through their supply chains, and then needing that accounting clarity to be able to credibly allocate and attribute impacts to the scope three of their purchasers, such as Nestle. Thank you, Sandra. Much there for further discussion, some great questions and comments coming in on the Q&A. So looking forward to getting to those in a bit. But now let's turn to Michelle. Michelle, very interested in hearing a bit more from your perspective. So we definitely agree there's a really big need for transformation from an ag and food company perspective. We believe that comes from kind of this landscape approach and maybe just to help set the scene and the context of where that comes from on specifically on the Nestle side. So in 2019, we set the net zero commitment to become net zero by 2050. Also within that execution strategy of how we get there, we had to set specific intermediate targets in 2025, 2030, 2050 that are all aligned with the science-based target initiative. So to really achieve that 1.5 degree target at the end of that time frame. In parallel, what we've also done is launched our forest positive strategy, which is really born out of our learnings of over 10 years of working on deforestation-free supply chains. The key, some key elements that were already mentioned that we learned in that process were that if we really want to reach those 1.5 degree targets, we need to invest in conservation and restoration, both urgently and at scale. We really need to do that with this landscape approach in mind, based on our experience and our learnings in that space, because that's where everything ultimately interconnects. Resilience is not really built or set up at the farm level only. It's really set up at that landscape level. And if we generally think about only applying or following rules that are really narrow and just focus on each business by themselves approach, we'll probably not be able to really get there as a collective. So this kind of angle of bringing everyone around the table to understand how the different farms that are in our supply chain are connected 
into the larger landscape around that is actually really, really critical. I think there's a really great opportunity for food and ag companies in the space because they're really particularly uniquely suited to take action here. They're already invested in those sourcing areas through engagements. Um, they source ingredients from there. It's important for us that those production systems stay resilient and are productive. And I believe also companies have much more an incentive to ensure that those safeguards that allow kind of healthy and equitable livelihoods are set up for success. So these type of projects are then are bringing different partners together that require this permanence and commitment over a long time will actually enable a lot of the right actions to ensure that joint work between farmers, suppliers, buyers, and brands are actually allowing us to transform the system for the future food and how we produce that. So for us, really the way of how we can maximize this, at least from the Nestle side and other companies in this space, is that rules and incentives are created that allow us to actually do those investments directly within our supply chain, but also the sourcing regions, which we refer to as the insetting concept, which is a bit different than investing in balancing out those greenhouse gases outside or in areas that are unrelated to our supply chain, which is this offsetting idea. Both of those are needed, but really to enable sustainable systemic change, it will require this deep engagement with farmers, suppliers, and brands to enable that we can really bring together and align on this 1.5 degree pathway. So we have to really find a way to collectively invest in and support that transformation of those areas. But the, as Scarlett was already mentioning, businesses do face a lot of risks or hurdles right now because of this uncertainty. So these investments will not materialize if we're not incentivized to actually provide clarity that companies can actually invest beyond the farms in the sourcing landscape, but also that they know that this investment will count towards their science-based targets. So this topic is very critical to help to solve and create that security that they are doing the right thing and moving in that right direction. Thanks, Michelle. Well, Tillman, turning to you, I'm always amazed to hear how Barry Calibos has walked every boundary of your supplier farms. Places like West Africa, an extraordinary amount of work goes into that. What has that closer relationship, that direct relationship with farmers taught you and helped inform you about this conversation? Yeah, thank you, Toby. Thanks, Michelle and, and colleagues for bringing us together to discuss. I'm really glad that we are actually meeting to discuss. I think it's a bit of a techie topic at first, right? Carbon accounting. But I think as you, Michelle, also pointed out, I think it's really at the heart of driving action or not driving action. What we're discussing is what can we include in our inventory and thus what can be account for science-based targets. By the way, I'm a huge fan of science-based targets. I think it's really, really great. But if something cannot be included in our inventory, it almost doesn't exist in the science-based targets world. So thus this massive driver for action that science-based targets mean in the industry wouldn't drive what we're looking for. And we're specifically talking about these near-farm landscape topics. Maybe briefly, for those who don't know Barry Calibaut and our sustainability strategy, we have targets set to become both carbon and forest positive by 2025. Um, with a focus on all ingredients, but naturally, we're the biggest chocolate manufacturer in the world. Naturally, cocoa is the number one priority for us. And as we are a B2B company, basically everything we're doing is together with our customer. So we're working side by side, pooling resources of any form. And we also then seek to double claim. And that's what we had also before, right? We have those overlapping scope threes, which then enable co-claims. And that's really a very important part of our strategy. 
briefly, what are we doing in our supply chain? Um, three elements. One, Toby, what you just mentioned, we actually, that's part of our due diligence. We're really mapping cocoa plots bit by bit using GPS and then being able to trace back our supply to this level. That helps us to create a traceability, but then also to apply due diligence, which is now also coming up. It's an important part of the EU legislation that is likely coming up, as we heard last week. So that's number one, the tracking and mapping of plots. Number two, scaling up of agroforestry across those plots, which we're doing again together with partners and which lead to those removals. A lot of that is certified under the Goldson and Value Change Program, where I think indeed Barry has been the very first company to receive a certification. First or second, Sander, you might probably know that better than I, since I just recently joined. And the last point is we go going beyond farm and work with partners at the landscape level to actually restore and protect ecosystems in those sourcing landscapes which are under risk. And if you think looking at the accounting rules as we have them now, as they're emerging, we have heard that a couple of times, and particularly the Greenhouse Gas Protocol land sector guidance, which has just last week closed and window for feedback, we're seeing that what we're doing on preventing deforestation on-farm with our plots and also the agroforestry on-farm, there's a good space for that in the accounting, where it gets a bit tricky in the current draft, that is accounting for restoring and protecting beyond the farm. There's not really a space for that. Let me tell you a little bit why I think this is very important. I think those beyond farm activities have this double materiality, a term that I really like. So both we are dependent of them. So we're dependent of those ecosystems around our farms to provide biodiversity, you know, think pollination, et cetera, to provide water services, both upstream, so water that we can use on farms, but also downstream um, so controlling potential effluent from our farms, there's elements of erosion control, there are rural livelihoods that we also compen- uh, depend on. So you could also even say, looking at those dependencies, they're almost an integral part of our value chain, right? We need them to produce. If we didn't have those landscapes or if they really degrade, we can't produce anymore. It's not only relevant what happens on the farm. So that's the number one part of the double materiality is dependency. The other part is impact. So we all know that the deforestation topic is by no means solved. And food is the number one driver of it. I think we heard numbers of 90% of deforestation is caused by agricultural expansion. It was thought to be 80%. Now it's the latest study. I thought it was even 90%. So it is not solved despite two decades of certification and a lot of working on farm to try to prevent deforestation. I think we are at a point where we know it's important to work on farm. But if you want to really tackle deforestation, we need to go beyond farm. I've almost exploited the opportunities that we have to control it by just working on a farm. So we continue to have an impact, the second part of the double materiality, we continue to have an impact from our on-farm activities to the landscapes around those. And that will, for the foreseeable future, be the case. And so it will also mean we have those liabilities that I think, you know, the world is also expecting us to take assume responsibility for those. And lastly, maybe also a, a point on impact and the accounting rules, maybe not everybody is aware of that, but we also have historic past emissions in our inventories for over 20 years, for up to 20 years, right? So there are things that we have in our inventories, which we can't really tackle, or we don't really have means to tackle them. So if I kind of take all of this together, what we are advocating for at, at Bari is, yes, we do need a continued strong focus on on-farm activities. I think the mitigation hierarchy concept is very important. So first, do your due diligence, prevent any 
deforestation from happening and any land use change and make sure the work is done on the farm. But then we need to open up the system and including the carbon accounting system to give us options to account for positive impact, means restoration, conservation, etc., of farm in those kind of sourcing landscapes. And if I'm looking at other initiatives in the area, like accountability framework initiative, like RSPO, all of those have a pathway built in that allows you to allows companies to have this local compensation or land use change mitigation in there. So you can have a certain level of deforestation or if it's unavoidable to actually to manage that or you can't rule it out, there's always an option to you following the mitigation hierarchy to then actually compensate it at a local level. But this option is not included in the greenhouse gas protocol as it currently stands. So we really think that that's a missed opportunity. It doesn't speak to the natural accountability we as a sector have to the broader society and the, and the planet, if you will, if you want to use that pathetic word. And it creates inconsistencies with other existing certification schemes. I mentioned accountability framework, but also RSPO has a remediation and compensation mechanism in there. So I think here we need to bridge the gap. And maybe a last point, just a thought I maybe want to throw out there again, might be a little bit techy. But one option to allow companies in the land sector to actually account for those landscape effects might be for them to also increase their liability. Right? One solution to this could be to say, if you want to account for carbon positive impact for protection and restoration at the landscape level, you also have to assume the negative side of the equation. So that means you would assume a fair share of the landscape level emissions in part of your inventory. So technically, right, that indirect land use change. So you could find a way to include it in the inventory by saying, okay, we, we assume both the kind of negative side, the footprint side of things at the landscape level, but then we also buy into the opportunities to reduce emissions on the positive impact side. Clearly in your industry, you're dealing with lots of smallholders. How do you think about how they could be specifically included in here and, and the kind of challenges and opportunities that we have? I know we could spend all day and the rest of next week talking about smallholders because it's such an important subject, but I wonder if you had some brief comments about how we get a bit more specific on making sure that they're suitably included. Smallholders just make it even harder, right, to actually work there because it's more fluent over time. They change over time, they change the locations. It's really hard to you have such a mass of farmers to work with, a high number of farmers. In the smallholder context, I would argue it's even more urgent to work at landscape level just because you have lower accountability of individual farmers. If you have one big commercial farmer, it's easier to hold them accountable. That's reduced that accountability for smallholder farmers. And on the other side, you need obviously also other technical approaches. You need to, to come up with solutions which are more scalable, which can work with this huge number of smallholders. So think even more remote sensing. The point I was going to make, I think, is in smaller context, it's even more urgent. But I even see it also in, in more commercial agricultural setup. I think even there, we need to think beyond farm as well. Well, there's clearly a great opportunity to create an extra level of incentives for all the things we want to happen if we get that right. Sandra, I think you had a brief comment on that. I just want to build on what Tillman said and also what we've been seeing is that ultimately there's a lot of food and beverage companies that have set a very ambitious targets, but a lot of the action needs to happen at farm level. And that's even more challenging, as Tillman points out, at a smallholder farm level and when you have uh, one million smallholder farmers that are supplying into a supply chain. So I think the work that we've been trying to realize in terms of collective action and enabling financing is a way to drive financing from those who've made the commitments to those who need to implement the action, but to make sure that this is done with integrity, as much traceability as is possible, right? Without hindering speed and skill and to make sure that that financing reaches those farmers that need to implement the action. 
And I see a huge role for those corporates, especially that are connected to the farmers, the big agri suppliers, purchasers, traders, because they're already connecting farmers and addressing them collectively and can extend their own propositions and services to drive climate action and financing as well. And I would extend that to a broader landscape level also. Scope 3 will provide such a lever for financing and speed and change that this can also provide a foundation for broader landscape restoration efforts. Michelle, a question for you. There's a lot of uncertainty around right now. And um, Adrian Greets put a great question in the chat, which I will, I will use here, because he's saying, you know, metrics and measurements remain a challenge to agree and action. Is this a critical requirement without which we can't move forward? Or will you action positive change even if you can't measure the actual outcome? We, we referred to that earlier, just getting on with it because we know the right thing to do. But then in that case, as we develop these measurements, how precise do they need to be? At least in our context, how we've been trying to deal with the uncertainty piece is internally because of this uncertain environment right now, we've developed an insetting framework that helps us actually define how do we prioritize these type of interventions and select the right projects within that space. Maybe just a quick bracket to ensure that we have clarity around this terminology, because I know in setting there are a lot of different definitions out there. So for us in setting, what we mean here is we invest in initiatives where we can really mitigate the impact of our ingredients, but also investing the resilience and the production systems in that context to really drive that transformation. So for us, in setting allows us to really transform our business, but also the sourcing regions and then the sector, which is a bit different to offsetting, which is more really not very business transformational, at least from our perspective, it's really more on the to ensure that we compensate our emissions. So it's a short term value and it's useful as well and, and has its part to play, but it's a separate, not as tied to the business transformation piece. So back to kind of this insetting framework, we how we're kind of addressing that uncertainty right now is through having this framework set up that allows us to group different projects or our supply boundaries into either on-farm projects, supply shed projects, or sourcing landscape projects that are either adjacent or non-adjacent to our farms or supply sheds. All of them in these sourcing regions need to be connected either biophysically or socioeconomically with our farms and supply sheds because it's important that that direct or indirect benefit still is supporting and the link is there with our supply or scope three boundary. But this uncertainty is still impacting decision-making even for us now with a framework like this set up. So we have a lot of the projects that we've now selected and are implementing over the coming years are mainly focused on farm and supply shed. We're also executing the sourcing landscape projects. But just imagine if rules wouldn't allow those, investment will not like will not go into that. It will be redirected. That is a reality of a company. We need to really think and ensure that that landscape perspective is in there, that scope three really empowers the direction to move towards the 1.5 degree targets. For us, it's critical that companies do act despite this uncertainty right now with these type of solutions or frameworks. But even in this context, there's still uncertainty that is left. And we're also hoping that we can encourage the right direction even while we're developing the rules still. Scarlett, is there anything you wanted to add to that? I saw you nodding along. Anything you'd like to build on that? I completely agree with Michelle when she says that like both are needed because 
as we know, a lot of the mitigation potential actually sits outside of the value chains of companies. You know, protecting pristine tropical forests is absolutely critical, even if they're not within direct sourcing landscape of these companies. So it's a both. And I guess I just like the question around data. For me, that's the really critical piece here. So two years ago, I spent quite a lot of time looking at the data companies and the data infrastructure, and I sort of didn't look at it at all last year and then recently looked at it again. And I'm just overwhelmed by the amount of companies and innovation happening in this space. And I know that lots of companies are quite scared about things like the net zero standard had a requirement to remove 90% of scope three emissions at the date of their net zero target. I know that that is scary, but at the same time, I do believe quite strongly that the data infrastructure that we're going to have in five years is going to look radically different to what it is today. We're talking about 20 years time and that actually data hopefully won't be as much as a problem. It's a big place for investment and it's amazing to see all the really cool startups in this space. So data critical, like, yes, it's, I know it's concerning, but the world isn't going to stay the same forever. My message of hope. Looking at the top rated question here, it's quite a complex one, but it's one I'd like to put to the panel and let's see who volunteers to answer it. Sandra, I see, has been typing a response, so maybe I'll come to you first, Sandra, on this. But Mary-Kate Bullen has asked a very important question here. How do we encourage new guidance to be pragmatic and usable? For example, draft scope three guidance on removals accounting from the GHG protocol. Current working group on carbon removals and land use suggests it will be required to have traceability to the land management unit level and perpetual monitoring for removals. I believe these requirements will not be achievable for most scale businesses. So are your organizations helping shape removals accounting in the GHG protocol? Thank you, Mary-Kate, for possibly the most complicated question I've ever read out in public. And I'm glad I'm not the one answering it, but it does seem to be very important. So who from our panel wants to volunteer to take that one on first? Sandra, I'm volunteering you. On GHG protocol accounting, the simple answer is yes. The Value Change Initiative is very much involved in helping to shape that guidance, uh, the land use change guidance of the GHG protocol, both officially by having the chair of the Value Change Initiative technical work sit on their technical working group, but also indirectly, because what we've effectively been doing at this initiative is really identifying what are the key accounting recognition and implementation challenges that need to overcome. And more specifically, when you start to create some clarity on one thing, you just raise the questions on the other side. So by defining more clearly what it means to have interventions within or beyond your boundaries, you raise the question, how can we get recognition for beyond boundary impacts? And that raises to some of the points that Michelle made on broader landscape efforts, but also specifically tying back to the GHG protocol, that there should be a specific approach when it comes to in-boundary removals and making that achievable. So yes, we're involved. The traceability challenge is real. I appreciate Scarlett's comment that I think what is unachievable now is going to be achievable very soon. So I see a lot of data, geosensing solutions, all of that emerging. So what is the change that needs to happen in accounting is how to deal with modeled approaches and how to combine that with verification of actual results. Because the answer will lie somewhere in the middle. Will you be able to make claims and assign those to footprints, partners, assign value, investment to that just on the basis of a model 
No, but will it be feasible to measure the soil change every day, every month, every year across an entire global supply chain? Also no. So the answer will lie somewhere in the middle and we are involved in really bringing those real life examples of verifying actual impacts on the ground into those discussions. Michelle, turning to you, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I I appreciate the pragmatic element of the question. I do think we need to recognize the reality of companies too. So I think one piece that comes to mind for me, at least when I hear that question is also the transient nature of our supply chains. Businesses like Nestle, we have global supply chains. Sometimes we source from a specific area that can shift or change. And so really ensuring that that is part of the thinking behind some of these rules to allow or be recognizing that we need to make sure if that project is executed within an area where that was part of the supply chain when that was done, how do we ensure that the company just doesn't just move away or just not invest in that area just because we're unsure where our sourcing in the future is coming from. So that transient element is critical, I think, in making sure these rules are pragmatic. And it also uh, refers to another element, which is almost the supply shed approach. Like we won't have always traceability back to immediately each single farm. Sometimes we know we have the region or a supply shed where one farmer is next to another farmer that might be part of a program or might not be part of a program. And so I think the supply shed approach in accounting is also critical to allow us to make this pragmatic and useful and not also get lost in just like trying for each single farm and point, invest all the money just for the traceability piece alone. We like need to find a good balance between traceability and investing in the actions on the ground as well. But I'm curious, Tillman, if you have any other experiences from the very caliber side too. Yeah. So in my introduction, I said, the kind of on-farm removals are mostly resolved, I think, in the current draft. I think the point that was raised is the number one thing that is still a challenge in on-farm removals. I'm actually quite glad it was raised. How we see it is that there needs to be a difference between traceability of the carbon removal that you're doing and the physical material. So we all know that we work in commoditized markets. Even some say it's becoming to the end of the commodity, the commodity era. But I do think for the foreseeable future, what we're talking about are still very commoditized, meaning we have very dynamic supply areas where we in one year buy from one farmer and the other from another farm or even another country. We need to enable action in this context. And I think this means you have to be fairly broad in terms of allowing where for the traceability on the actual physical product. So say I'm sourcing cocoa from, from Ivory Coast, obviously that's our biggest sourcing market. I know that and I'm chasing back. So that allows me, I would suggest it allows me to also then remove in this area and I have to have full traceability on the plot that I'm removing. And I might have a, you know, a direct contact with a farmer through an intermediary co-op or so, but I have a direct contact that he is basically producing, if you will, removals for me. But on the physical side, the traceability is very broad in order to account for the dynamic nature of commodity markets. On the carbon side, it's very clear. This is my plot and I'm getting removals from that and I'm accounting it for it. I think that would be the best approach in our environment in our markets today. But the challenge is a bit that how do I avoid that if next year somebody else is choosing from that farmer, he doesn't also double claim. So for that, we need a registry. Sandra, trying to look at you. We need some registry, somebody independent to say, oh, this farmer is actually doing removals because Barry Kalibaut, maybe together with Neste, has supported him to do and we're accounting for it. So we can't have somebody else claiming the same thing, even if physically next year somebody else is sourcing. So in short, a kind of taking apart 
traceability of the physical product versus the carbon removal and treating it separately, I think would be a very good approach that I also don't see in the current draft of the greenhouse gas protocol. Do any of you have concerns that biodiversity isn't sufficiently included in this approach? Somebody put in the comment the rather pithy line that we could reduce carbon but still have enormous soil problems. And um, we can't really ignore the biodiversity challenge, but I mean, measurement is very tough, as we know. So I wonder if you have any comments on that before we move into the final few minutes of our discussion. Scarlett. The Greenhouse Gas Protocol, the Science-Based Target Initiative, they are all about climate. And so absolutely, I think that's why people have been thinking about carbon here. But there are these other emerging initiatives. So there's the Science-Based Target Network, which is developing methodologies for companies to set targets on land, freshwater, biodiversity and marine ecosystems. They have a very difficult job because they are not only trying to create the equivalent of the science-based target initiative, i.e. the pathways, they're also trying to create the accountancy standards, define the metrics all at the same time. There's a huge amount of technical work going on there at the moment. I'm working with them actually on the land hub and there's lots of efforts to bring business into this development phase. If that's something that you want to get involved in, do. They've got a corporate engagement program. There's also obviously the TNFD, Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, and the CDSB, the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, is, I think, next week publishing guidance for business on reporting for biodiversity risks and opportunities. Nature's a bit behind in terms of maturity, behind on climate, but I think we will get there. Like This is so critical because you could potentially see businesses making investments in nature that have perverse outcomes. So companies investing in very fast growth crops instead of mixed native ecosystems because they want quick sequestration. But as we know, that actually in the long term, it has lower climate impact and also can have you know, disastrous effects for biodiversity. So we really need to think about these things together. Annoyingly, we're a bit behind on nature. We're still trying to understand the metrics and the data, but I think we'll get there. Michelle, maybe you could talk a bit more about how what we're talking about here links up with Nestle's regenerative ag approach, which we helped you guys launch a couple of months ago and seems like a, a very serious commitment. What are the kind of links between the two so far? Yes, Nestle definitely launched this new initiative working specifically with farmers on agricultural practices and how to think about investing and ensuring those practices and enable better management, but also management for biodiversity and soil carbon sequestration and all those pieces. I think overall, like with their reforestation projects, we understand the critical connection between biodiversity and there are still challenges with how do you exactly measure all of those pieces. What we're doing, at least in some of those efforts, at least at the reforestation side at the project level, is to ensure that we work with local partners that really understand what are the native species, what is the local need, and also engage the communities, the local context, really, for those projects to ensure that we have that perspective and are also able to measure those additional, if you want to call them co-benefits or additional elements, impact elements that are part of those initiatives for conservation and restoration. We're aware of it and we're integrating it on the ground already and working on how do we now scale it across and within our forest positive strategy as well. 
In a minute, I'm going to ask all of our panellists to sum up their hopes and dreams from this session as to what we want to happen next as a result of this. But before that, quite a specific but popular question from Natalius. She asks, in setting projects involving removals, e.g. agroforestry, afforestation, can they be claimed against a science-based target or only a net zero target? Now, this seems quite important given what Scarlett was just saying about setting the right kind of objectives and the two dreaded words in sustainability, unintended intended consequences. I wonder who wants to take that on, Sandra perhaps, and then maybe Scarlett if you want to say something. A, a simple question with a very long, complicated answer. So I'll just give the simple answer. Can removals currently be counted against a science-based target? No, they can be counted against a net zero target. However, we are waiting on the GHG protocol land use change guidance because that will give recognition specifically for this sector on the role of in-boundary removals and how those, I don't foresee that they will be exactly netted in two inherently different forms of measurement, but at least how they can be related and acknowledged in the context of a science-based target, a scope three target specifically, and then the distinction between that and beyond boundary removals in terms of aligning to net zero. So that's a quick question. I think we're all waiting for the details on that. And with those details, we can build the systems to track and trace, the verification methods to make sure that impacts are actually realized, that there are no intended consequences, and that co-benefits are at least kept into account, at least unintended consequences are avoided, as well as making sure that there are counting concepts that recognize the challenges that companies face and allow for recognition of impacts that are being achieved and with that drive investment. We're almost out of time. So Scarlett, unless there's something you really wanted to add to that, if you did, no, great. In which case, Sandra, let me come back to you. Then we'll go to Scarlett Tillman and finally Michelle. Two questions for you both to finish. What's the one thing you'd like our audience to take away from this one at a time? And secondly, what do you want to see happen now as a result of this and the ongoing conversation. Sandra, let me start with you, if we could be relatively brief. The key takeaway is one that the audience has already. There's a lot of overlapping standards, accounting guidance, documents and incentives and mechanisms that drive action in this space. Resolving that and finding the connections between them is going to help to accelerate and speed up financing from this sector. Thank you. Scarlett. Key takeaway, all of these initiatives have corporate engagement programs, so get involved. They are going to create the rules that allow you to count certain things over the next decade, so get involved. And then I'm just very heartened that Nestle has brought us together to have this conversation and that we've had so many people join a conversation about accounting. It's really important stuff, so thank you all. Tillman. Well, key takeaway is right, how important greenhouse gas protocol is in a world where everybody has signed up to science-based targets because they're the gatekeeper. If it's not in there, it hardly happens. It doesn't, as Michelle said, the, the investment will be redirected. I think that is how relevant that is. Uh, can't be overstated. So that's a takeaway. And my dream would kind of be that the land-based sector comes together and assumes the responsibility of what's happening in landscape, but in, in vice versa, then also claims the tools, the mechanisms, the incentive, like to actually be able to also account for the positive. So claims that the benefits of that, what we're doing and what we have to do really beyond the farm. And let me give the final word to Michelle. The reason why we convened this discussion, again, was because we know we need to invest and we need to do that now. We are concerned about the rules as we discussed today, but we have been engaged also with the different accounting bodies and they are receptive. But we also, what we need to see a bit more is 
other companies that are joining their voice to this topic in the ag and food sector specifically. And we're really keen to build on this and bring companies in. I, I know it's a really big challenge that we're trying to solve here, but the action items really from the corporate perspective, I believe we need to act now despite the uncertainty and we need to invest in sourcing landscapes. Thank you, Michelle. Well, those of you watching and listening from large companies who want to do what Michelle has just asked you, do, do get in touch. We can help make that happen. Do email us at Innovation Forum. We could talk about this for days, and in fact, you can. We are holding our Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference on the 30th of November to the 2nd of December. Literally three days of discussions on this topic and many others in the space. So we hope you can join us then. Much appreciate Nestle's support in sponsoring this and, and helping us convene you all here. We look forward to continuing that conversation with you bilaterally, connecting you to Nestle, and indeed speaking about this conference where we hope you can join us online. So thank you all so much. It's been a pleasure, and we look forward to continuing the discussion with you in the coming months and years. Thank you.